Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our Coronavirus The Shockwaves panel podcast. Today is the 27th of February, and I'm joined by Sheldon MacDonald, Alex Byrne, Mayank Markande, Sol Nevins, and Nathan Sweeney. The coronavirus, or COVID-19, as it's now known, is not yet a pandemic, but for the first time yesterday, the number of new cases outside China is higher than the number in China. It's now hit every continent except Antarctica. On a macroeconomic level, it's been a double whammy. The supply-side shock triggered by factory shutdowns in China has rolled into a demand shock. We've seen sharp reactions in financial markets as confidence has evaporated this week. If I could turn to you first, Sheldon, and give us some sort of scene setting on how the financial markets have been responding. It's been a fairly classic response to a demand shock and, as you say, a supply shock. We've seen risk assets falling quite dramatically and the safe haven assets have clearly responded. And we have seen now declines in equity markets of over 10%. We do need to keep that in context, though. We are still 5% or more above the lows that we saw last summer. That's because in the second half of last year, we did have quite a sharp rally in response to the trade deal that was agreed between China and the US. And that was expectations of better growth for the world. Yes, the markets have responded, but important not to panic, keep some perspective. We are still above where we were just a short six months ago. And yet, Mike, we have seen an adjustment to our tactical asset allocation this week. Yes, we have. In our tactical asset allocation, we've gone from being neutral in equities to being moderately underweight in equities. The reasons for that are, you know, what we're seeing in the market is really panic and irrationality, which is triggered by alarming media reports to some degree. There is reason to be panicked in these situations, but what we're seeing now is the market being completely not focused on actual developments of the virus and being indiscriminate in selling just purely based on fear alone. And in this kind of environment, we do know that the risk will become asymmetric, which means any news, big or small, is going to be punished disproportionately and severely by the market. Whilst fundamentals may not deteriorate to the same degree, at the moment we're in a sentiment-driven market environment and it makes good sense for our portfolios to acknowledge that and have a prudent asset allocation, which means being moderately underweight in equities. And cash levels? So cash levels are going up as a result. The underweight in equity is being translated into a moderately overweight position in cash. Other element is that the underweight is being funded from Europe and emerging markets where the virus concerns are most acute. Finally, in terms of portfolio construction, we are also advocating being defensive. So what that means is that we have exposure to strategies and managers that are more defensive. We have higher exposure to minimum volatility, higher exposure to hedges in the portfolio, and less exposure to strategies which are more cyclical in nature, for example, value, value strategies, or high growth strategies that will underperform in a growth slowdown. So we are anticipating that this, certainly the uncertainty and probably the fear response will continue. The uncertainty will continue, but we just don't know what the market reaction will be. So far, it's been negative. And for us, you know, we just need to continue to watch how it develops. I think it's important to be prudent in times like this. We are risk managers, first and foremost. And it does make sense simply to take some risk off the table in an environment where we don't know how it's going to play out. We're not experts in virology or anything like that. We have no advantage in trying to predict which way it might end up. And so we'd rather take the cautious approach. Indeed. And, you know, it makes sense to obviously have some cash in the portfolio because that gives you the opportunity to take advantage when you see the market revert back. Well, quite. And if we can stay with you there, Nathan, for a while, 
Just a few weeks ago, we had markets on both sides of the Atlantic at record high levels mm -hmm. and expecting really that the central banks would come in and just offer any support that was needed. Why is that not enough now, do you think? So if we think about uh, the US specifically, so you're talking about central bank support, there is some belief that central banks will provide support, but the Fed haven't actually said that yet. So if we look at what the Fed has done, they have cut rates three times last year. They have said that growth is okay. But if we look at what the market is pricing in as a result of coronavirus mm -hmm. and you know the recent price action in markets, they're looking for rate cuts this year. So if you look at the June meeting, there's over an 80% chance of a rate cut. But the Fed has yet to commit to that. And, you know, it's not really wise for the Fed to react to market jitters and cut rates as a result of that. They need to see something more tangible. So importantly, actually, we saw a report from Goldman Sachs this morning, which talked about cutting their expectation for earnings growth for this year. And they've actually cut that quite substantially. So if we look at Goldman's expectation for growth for U.S. companies for 2020, it was 6% at the beginning of the year. They have revised that to zero. And we're so, going to be seeing more and more of that. Moment. Yeah, and that's, that's a big turnaround. So I think something like that and expectations of how that could impact growth should come into the Fed's consideration. So mm -hmm. I definitely wouldn't rule out a rate cut, even though they're not talking about it yet. And of course, central banks can help with demand, but they can't really fix the supply side. Exactly. Alex, if we could turn to you in China, mm -hmm. uh, the People's Bank of China responded very quickly and that was well received by the markets. Yeah, I think it, you know, it's in line with long-term trends. We're going to continue to see supportive several banks and supportive governments around the world, no more so than China. They had been cutting rates, continue up until that point anyway, so I don't see that it's any surprise that they've done that to try and support growth in the short term. Of course, we need to remember, though, that central banks control monetary policy, which means that can have an impact on monetary assets, so they can help to boost asset prices. It's still questionable about the, the link in actual end demand, so economic growth. And that's where we've been saying for a long time that we need governments to step in with fiscal policy. We do have positive noises from most governments around the world in terms of providing that fiscal stimulus that we're looking for. And so hopefully that could be a positive that can offset some of this. One of the difficulties, obviously, with fiscal policy is the time delay in that money actually getting into the economy because, you know, governments can commit to spending on big projects, but the trickle-down effect is a, it, a big lag. Indeed. I think one of the other challenges, really, for central bank intervention with this particular situation is that in a typical growth slowdown, making credit more readily available and cheaper to access would encourage individuals to go out and spend. But at what price do people brave to take advantage of cheap credit? So the transmission mechanism may be less effective. So I think if we look at what the market could do, it's quite likely that if we get a downplay in the cases that are being released, the market could react quite quickly and return to the trends of what it was, support several banks, they buy the same assets that they have done for the last five, ten years. I think the question mark would come more when we start to get the Q1 earnings. The market's been talking about supply side, demand side, earnings, all the rest of it. But if you look at more kind of practical examples of what's happened because of the virus, it paints a better picture. In China, there's been 150 million tonnes less carbon that's been released since the start of the year. We've had cities the size of the UK in terms of population being shut down. That's all lost production. I think we will continue to have supportive policies from South Bank's governments. But I find it quite difficult that the market's kind of ambivalence up to the point at the start of the week in terms of the market continuing to rally is just immediately turned around. And I think yeah. we do get continuing shock. 
Yeah, so I would agree with that. So if we think of expectations for earnings, they're obviously going to be weak in Asia for Q1, and it's likely that it doesn't hit Q2 earnings for the rest of the globe as this virus spreads globally and is likely to get worse. But I think one positive thing we can take away is that if you look at past pandemics or epidemics, normally when the market sells off, within six months the market is higher, and 12 months the market is higher. Well, and that would be a result of central bank action, just fund managers such as us sitting on higher levels of cash. There'd be cash waiting to invest in the markets if there were to be a rebound. Cash offers the optionality to reinvest back when conditions improve, and you have evidence that concerns at least around coronavirus, which is impacting sentiment, have paid to some degree. Um, to Nathan's earlier point, you know, it's true that markets bounce back quite sharply after similar sort of pandemics or epidemics. So, for example, in Zika, the one-month return post the virus was around minus 6%. For Ebola, it was minus 7.5%. The three-month return, in fact, for Ebola was minus close to minus 14%. And then the market did bounce back, but that is making an assumption that the duration of this epidemic or pandemic is the same as those two previous viruses. Indeed, and these are things that we just can't know at the moment. Alex? I agree with the point from both Nathan and Mike. The one thing I would say is the chances of individual recessions are probably more elevated than they could have been previously. Two quarters of an epidemic. Yeah, so Japan, probably quite likely now, I would yeah. say, and getting more likely, and potentially Europe, not necessarily a recession, but it was flat this last quarter, and yeah. I think it could potentially be and negative. Germany most exposed there, do you think? Or? Germany most exposed in terms of coronavirus, certainly because of the, the autos, but Italy in terms of actual recession. Yes. But, yeah. So if we if we do see recession, you know, it's a technical recession, and uh, obviously the market will look at the price levels and then decide whether or not that offers value, and it likely will offer value. So you'd expect the market to rally, irrespective of that. There is the economic response that follows after the virus, hopefully at some point, is contained. There is a restocking uh, boost to the economy that kind of automatically follows. So. There is some reason to be positive post the event. It's just in the meantime, there's yeah, there's less uncertainty. So it'd be the rebounding of growth after these negative events. Yes, might. The other element is the starting points are different. So SARS, most closely associated with current one, at that point in 2003, the markets had just come off the crash in the tech bubble. So stock prices were at multi-year, even multi-decade lows. Now, stock prices are in multi-year highs. So the starting point is different. That doesn't mean the market cannot rally once this goes away, but you know it's, it's important to keep in mind. It's important indeed. If we just look at how the commodity markets have responded to solar, it appears to be diametrically opposite. Gold has been one of the best performing major asset classes here today. and has benefited from the risk of sentiment that has been so good for government bonds as well. And this is what you'd expect in a typical risk-off environment particularly one where bond yields are already yielding very low levels and therefore the opportunity cost of owning a non-yielding asset such as gold um, is, is relatively more attractive. At this point, I would say that gold doesn't offer any strong relative value against fixed income and the moves in tandem have kind of been what I would expect. Oil, on the other hand, has suffered immensely this year due to a combination of risk of sentiment, but also the fundamental impact on demand that is coming from reduced travel and industrial activity. That's likely to result in a large supply-demand mismatch over the first half of this year. So a very straightforward picture there, anyway. Sheldon, can we come back to the theme of safe haven assets, and particularly the bond markets? 
Sure. As we mentioned earlier, we've, we're now at, well, we've touched record low bond yields. We've got US Treasuries around about 1.3%. Gilts in the UK are below a half a percent. And really just reflecting investors looking for that safe haven asset. As Sol mentioned, uh, with gold in bond markets, you can't really see any fundamental value there. It's simply the protecting asset. If there is a more significant growth shock, and if this does turn into drop us into recessionary territory around the globe, then bonds really are the only game in town. So we have a, a small overweight in duration on US treasuries. That's served us quite well. Remember that for most investors at the relatively low risk profiles will have the majority of their exposure in fixed income as opposed to equities. And in fact, there are currencies which are viewed as safe havens. The dollar has been a very strong performer, the Swiss franc. Often it's the yen, Alex, but not in this instance. I think yen's a really interesting one, to be honest, because it's always historically been used as a safe haven asset. So even if you look at the time when North Korea tensions were elevated, it was still used as a safe haven, even though it's geographically very exposed. This time around, it hasn't at all. It's sold off, in fact. And there's a few key reasons for it. The economy is looking a lot worse. The data is a lot worse. The GDP number that I had out a few weeks ago was particularly weak off the back of the typhoons that they had a year ago and also the tax rises they had at the back of last year and the kind of effect of that. The trends that we've seen over the last few years have also been that the one of the largest investors, the government pension fund, has been doing more and more offshore investment in terms of bonds. And also you've seen a huge amount of foreign outflows. There's a lot less assets that are in Japan at the moment ready to come back, I would say. I think the market's become a bit fed up with the situation and the never-ending chill. The equity market? Or? Well, I think just the economy and the equity market in general. There's obviously the never-ending potential for it to be good and it's got good value and all the rest of it but it never seems to quite get up to speed. And unusually, the equity market has responded very poorly. Normally, if the yen weakens as an exporting economy, yeah. the market would do better. I think it's just because the data is pretty weak generally, so the economy doesn't look like it's in good shape. You've had the, these two big effects, which you would hopefully see a bit of a rebound from, but you've got this uncertainty around coronavirus, which Japan is a big exporter, a big autos exporter, all the rest of it is pretty exposed to. Just one comment on you know the potential for this to go on longer than expected. Uh, Alex is talking about exporters there. We live in a very globalised world now, and if you look at supply chains, they're very interlinked at a global level. So as the virus spreads, it's going to disrupt supply chains to a much greater extent than it has historically. So which leads me to believe that actually this may not get contained in Q1 or Q2 and could even drag on a little bit longer and may lead to subdued markets over a period of time due to valuations. But I still firmly believe that central bank support will enable markets to reach higher highs from here. But it's going to be a rocky ride over the coming months. Yes, as you say, we have people and components and all sorts of commodities in the wrong part of the world at the wrong time, and that will need some adjustment. How long do you think, Sheldon, this could take to unwind? That all depends. We're not yet at the stage of this being called a pandemic. As you mentioned, though, the rate of infection is now higher outside of China than it is inside of China. Outside of China, there's less scope for the authorities to implement more authoritarian measures like closing down cities. So that means there is the risk that outside of China, that may start spreading uh, even quicker. On the other hand, as we move through time, though, of course, the hope for a vaccine increases the possibility of one being found. So we do think there will be a recovery. I think we're all agreed. The question is whether it's a V-shaped, a U-shaped, or perhaps an L-shaped recovery, where it's low and slow for an extended period. I think there is going to be a restocking response to this. Economically, I think the prospects are relatively good in terms of exactly when that happens. Who knows? The market response is another question because, as Mayank said, 
we're in unprecedented territory. We don't have examples of having seen a, an epidemic or a pandemic when we've been at multi-decade or multi-year highs in equity markets. So it's very difficult to try to predict where we're going from here. Mike, can we just come back to you on the tactical asset allocation? What would it take for you to reverse your position there? The first thing is that we're fundamental investors, so we need to see evidence of an improved or a better rate or slowdown of infection rate. We need to see evidence of containment in terms of being contained to the affected areas. We need some more further progress on the vaccination side. And then seasonal factors also come into play as we move into the summer months. Temperature rises and the spread of the virus just slows down naturally. So all of these elements need to kind of work together for us to build conviction in moving to a neutral or even a higher weighting in equities. And on the market valuations front? So on the valuations front, the markets are down, let's say, peak to trough in Europe, just under 10%, in US less than that. We don't think that this is the level to be getting in building a weight position, but there will come a level where markets look particularly cheap and maybe they're pricing in too much risk into equity prices. We also need to wait for earnings to come through in Q1 in terms of seeing real hard evidence of what the impact of the slowdown is on earnings. So far, it's just been in a guidance and rhetoric, so we don't really know the true picture. All we can say is we just need to monitor this situation very closely and look for all these uh, markers and signs. Thank you for that, Alex. One key thing that uh, Mike mentioned there was for fundamental investors to rely on data. That's one key thing about trying to look at the data is that you've always got to have a bit of scepticism about the data when it comes out of China. Um, so we look at the GDP number, how smooth it is, all the rest of it. So, so when you look at the amount of people that have been infected and the deaths that have occurred because of it, you've got to take it with a pinch of salt almost. And it's suspicious that it seems as soon as it's come into Europe and also the Middle East, death toll seems to have increased pretty rapidly from the levels that we saw in China. So there's a... And again, that's a difficulty for central bankers because there is no data at the moment because all of this is feeding through into data. It's not in company earnings at the moment, so there's a big time lag. Um, so a lot of uh, fundamental investors are finding it difficult, obviously, to how do we manage this? And the best thing to do is obviously reduce risk. Absolutely. Sheldon, if I could just ask you to summarise our discussion. The market has reacted classically to a set of known unknowns. It's sold off risk assets, it's rallied on the safe haven assets. And that's, a, as I say, a classic response. We ourselves have been prudent in response to this by reducing equity exposure. We do have to remember though always that we have to take a long-term view. We know that volatility is part and parcel of investing. And so looking ahead, we're not taking a long-term view. We're not, we don't believe, we're not overreacting. And we're also looking for diversification, which, as mentioned earlier, exposure to the safe haven assets that we have, to some of the diversifying assets, that's helped uh, smooth the path for investors. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you.